the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sitting over Bob today, I'm Rob Walgate, and um, the first hour went by quickly. I didn't have the intention of discussing medicinal marijuana. I guess once you once you start, you just can't stop. I guess maybe that's what it's like. I didn't have the intention of discussing that for the entire first hour, but um, we had some great callers, some great comments and questions. Uh, the phone number, 216-901-0945, if you want to weigh in this morning. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a turn now and and talk about some of the things that are happening currently in our state of affairs as a nation, but also looking ahead, getting out the binoculars a bit and looking ahead to 2020. One of the headlines um, in the media around Ohio today is the discussion of Sherrod Brown, of Sherrod Brown, um, Senator, United States Senator Sherrod Brown, dipping his toe in the water, testing it out for a possible presidential run. You know, when you look at the state of Ohio and you look what happened a few months ago on Election Day and you look at how the Republicans just rolled in all statewides, uh, rolled everywhere. And um, when the Democrats were looking for that that bright spot, looking um, at something that positive they could take, you know, they, they looked at Sherrod Brown and what he was able to do as a Democrat and to win a statewide election. Um, so Ohio is valuable when it comes to the Electoral College. Ohio is valuable when it comes to a national perspective and uh, the prestige it brings. So it's easy to see why Sherrod Brown may test the waters and take a look at running for president. Could it be that he knows that He's never going to win the nomination for president, so he's just putting it out there to possibly, possibly get on a short list that someone would ask him to run as vice president of the United States. Someone would ask him to join their ticket. Maybe he could get out there and get his voice and his message heard so that that people could um, see what he's about across the country because the question becomes how much name recognition does Sherrod Brown have outside the borders of Ohio. How much does he have in those states of uh, the key states that are early? Uh, the Iowa's, the New Hampshire's. Uh, the one thing Democrats, I think, learned from 2016 and watching the Republicans is um, I, how many Republicans were there in the when the primary process started? I think there was 97, maybe 98. There was a lot of them, close to 100, it felt like. If you remember, the first debate the Republicans held in the summer of 2015, well over a year in advance of the presidential election of 2016, that debate was held at Quicken Loans Arena in downtown Cleveland. I think they, it was kind of like, wasn't it like Thanksgiving, if I remember correctly, where they had the big, the adult table and the kiddie table? They had the early debate and the late debate. Um, and, and they kind of determined how you got to be where. And of all those candidates, which I believe there were 16 or 17, maybe not close to 100, but it felt like 100. Um, if you look back at that, by far, 
the most liberal of all those Republican candidates, the person who would have been considered to have their policy positions, um, their past aligned with the left, without a doubt would have been Donald Trump, without a doubt, on policy issues. I don't even think it, it would be close um, when you look at the other people that were on that stage. And we see how, I don't know if the word crazy or mad is appropriate. I think I'm hearing Bob in my ear. I think he would say it's uh, it's more than appropriate to say that Donald Trump drives the left crazy and mad. He drives some people on the right crazy and mad as well. But when you look at that, the Democrats have learned. So there, there are people aligning themselves now. They're going to these early states. They're trying to set up campaigns. They're putting staff in place. They're going to meetings. They're seeing if they can raise money. They're seeing what they can do to make it work and happen. And that's what the Republicans did. They got out early. They got a lot of people out early and out front, and they saw what stuck. And that was totally opposite to what the Democrats did because the Democrats, really, from the beginning, there were two candidates. I know who was the third. I think I think it was a Martin O'Malley. Who was the third that was with Hillary and Bernie that were in that was in one or two of those debates? But it was Hillary and Bernie. It was Hillary and Bernie um, from from the beginning um, that that were on there that that people were listening to. Uh, that, that they wanted to hear from, and people aligned themselves. So the Democrats have changed. They're going to start their first debate, I believe, in June of 2019. They haven't determined how many candidates are going to be on the stage at once. They haven't determined a lot of the rules. I think they'll play that by the fly to see who who decides they're going to run. Uh, if someone like Sherrod Brown says he's going to run, you you have to think, Um, you know, I know Joe Biden, uh, I, I think, in hindsight, Joe Biden, is upset that he didn't get the opportunity to run in 2016. So let's look. And the Democrats are making changes here as well when it comes to delegates and superdelegates. Let's go back and look. Remember, so many superdelegates, so many delegates that that weren't didn't have to listen to the votes of the people in all these states across the country. They were Democrat heavy hitters that they were going to go to the national convention and vote for whoever they wanted to be the nominee on the Democrat side. So many of those superdelegates align themselves early with Hillary Clinton. And they align themselves so early that they knew it was going to be an uphill battle for anyone else to jump in late. It was going to be an uphill battle for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders could have won well over 50% of the pledge delegates, but it would not have mattered because Hillary had so many superdelegates already locked up. So if Joe Biden would have jumped in the race late, and they say he was weighing his options, but if he would have jumped in the race late, let me ask you this. If you were a Democrat superdelegate that already pledged your authority to Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family, would you have won against your word? Would you have double-crossed the Clinton family? Do you have that much courage? Are you willing to, to take that stand and to do that? Because I think a lot of those superdelegates weren't weren't willing to do that. Once they'd said publicly who they were aligned with, they were going to be that. And that's why you're seeing the Democrats change some of the rules, change some of the ways that they will do things as they head to 2020. One of the things will be the allowance for superdelegates and how how they will play out. So what will happen is if, if anyone, anyone that's in the, the primary process for the Republicans, if any of them um, have wrapped up over 50% of the pledged delegates, over 50% of the delegates that are bound by um, people's vote in the state. So if a candidate wins 50% of the pledged delegates plus one, um, 
during the primary season. When the primary season ends, then the superdelegates cannot vote on the first ballot when it comes time for the convention. So therefore, you wouldn't have had the nightmare scenario that was possible last time with Bernie Sanders could have won over 50% of the pledge delegates, and he still wouldn't have been the nominee. The Democrats realized that, realized that um, as part of the process last time, so they've changed it for this time. Um, they've also put in that if a candidate wins 50% of all the delegates, so the superdelegates, this would be the, the second liar. So if no one wins 50% of the pledge delegates, but if they win 50% of all the delegates, including the superdelegates, um, then that would trigger the ability for the superdelegates to participate and have a say in who the winner would be for the nominee. It's going to be interesting to watch how this plays out. It's going to be interesting to watch all these states, all these different people. You, you know, they're talking about Kamala Harris. They're talking about Beto O'Rourke. They're talking about Joe Biden, Sherrod Brown, so many people that, hey, they're still talking, aren't they? You hear people all the time talk about Hillary Clinton, that she's still around. Does she still have that dream? You know, I there's been many people talk about, we know John Kasich was out of a job as governor of the state of Ohio for like two or three days. There's some people that think he's going to jump in and run. I know, I know he has just signed a contract with CNN. I read a quote from him, if I read it correctly, that said what he's going to do is call balls and strikes. He's going to be the umpire. Well, I have a little, little message for him. Here's the deal. Um, number one, you don't get to pick and choose, um, when you're that biased to, to be an umpire because you're not, you're not going to see things fairly as someone who has been a sports official and is a sports official. I can tell you, I can also tell you that if he considers himself a player, someone that was in the game as governor, I can also tell you sometimes the players don't make the best officials because they're so tainted and biased. I mean, look at, look at John Kasich's progression from the time he was elected um, as governor of the state of Ohio in 2010 to what we're having now. I mean, when you talk, maybe some people think he would fit that independent mantra to try and run. Maybe he would try and run against Donald Trump and primary Donald Trump. We know he stuck around last time in the primary process entirely too long, <laughs> longer than was needed. He had zero shot to win mathematically, but he stuck around just so he could drop a lot of confetti in Berea when uh, he won the state of Ohio in, in the primary process, the only state that, that he did win and the delegates that he did receive. And there's some that say he could go to the Democrat side and run with a Democrat and run on the ticket there. I'm going to tell you something. Take a look at John Kasich's policy, policy positions. Take a look at the spending that was done over with John Kasich in office. The Medicaid expansion. I'm going to tell you what. In the state of Ohio, we're going to have a budget issue coming up in a few years to where we're going to be out of federal money. And and the expansion that we did when it comes to Medicaid, what's going to happen? How are we going to pay for it? Our state budget continued to grow and grow and grow. I think that's something we can look at as a state and nationally, and I think it's something that needs to be discussed in the presidential. Welcome back to the Bob France Authority on this bit of a chilly Wednesday morning in Northeast Ohio, but we're having a good time. We're talking uh, 
We're talking elections. We're talking 2020. We can dive into money. We're going to talk the Census Electoral College. Um, at the bottom of the hour after that break, Dave Zanotti, President, CEO of the American Policy Roundtable, is going to join me. Uh, going to join me and he's my boss. So, uh, we're going to, we're going to be nice and, uh, we're going to have a fun conversation and, um, we're going to talk about what lies ahead and how it's going to impact all of us. I'll tell you a story the other day. My daughter had something, um, DVR'd or on the television, TVO'd from before. And I was doing a little work at the kitchen table and she was watching it. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I heard a political ad and my ears perked up and I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they're starting already. What, what happened here? Um, but it was a show from October that she likes to watch over and over again. And, um, but it got my attention and it made me think about 2020 and what lies ahead as we talked about the de- debates that will begin in 2019. There's no doubt this is a money play. This is a money game. This is a money game from the candidates and the money that they will be able to raise. But it's also a money game for what they will be able to spend and what they will be able to spend with the networks for ads, as well as how the networks will be able to use these debates to try and garner viewers to sell ads. So it's all one big, big cycle. And the longer they can extend it, the better off and the more that they're smiling. Take a look at um, cable news. Listen, they can get on there and, and many of them are entertainers. That's who fill your televisions in the evening on cable news many times it's entertainers and they can tell you that they like or dislike donald trump but when the red light goes off and they get behind closed doors i think they'll tell you they like him because it brings eyes on the television and brings viewers and it brings ratings which bring ad dollars and no one no one in television or radio is complaining about that. But that's the one thing about talk radio. That's the one thing I enjoy about talk radio. I enjoy listening to talk radio. I, I listen to Bob every morning. If I, if every morning that I can, I'm tuned in. I appreciate his audience. I appreciate the callers that he has, the subjects he covers from a national perspective. And we monitor it all across the country and listen to different programs and stations. But I'll tell you what, we are very fortunate to have Bob in Northeast Ohio sharing his perspective and view with us on these airwaves and bringing it the way he does talk radio is what's doing the best job of educating people all across the country i think it's why you've seen some of the moves that you've seen happen is because people are willing to sit down and they're willing to listen and process it's not always someone screaming and yelling at each other it's not how it's done it's a lot of education it's a lot of discussion it's a lot of quite frankly Smart callers asking asking the right question. But some of you may be listening and saying, you know what, we're spending too much money in politics. I'll be honest with you, I'm not one of those people. I, I don't think we are spending too much money in politics. Um, when you take a look at and compare it to what we spend on other things, in 2016, there was a total of $2.6 billion, a billion with a B, spent on the presidential election. $2.6 billion by candidates, by interest groups, by whatever you want to put on there. That's what was spent. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for a presidential election, for just the presidential election. Do you know in 2016 as a country, we spent $4.2 billion, with a B, on airline baggage fees? Do you know we spent over $9 billion, with a B, 
on Halloween. We spent nearly $7 billion on fireworks on the 4th of July. So I think when you compare that number and you look at the grand scheme of things, that number's not as quite as big as you think it is, number one. Number two, I do think there comes into question some things regarding campaign finance laws. Um, how are those applied? What does it look like? And it's all done. And it's all said in regards to see who can win the Electoral College, to see who can win the, the election for the President of the United States. When we get back after the break, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Electoral College. We're going to talk about the census. We're going to dive in and take a look at 2020 and how each of us will be impacted by it. You're listening to Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. I can tell you, but it's so Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Welcome back to the Bob France Authority. Rob Walgate sitting in for Bob, and I've appreciated the discussion and all the calls today. Um, as we look ahead to 2020 and and what does lie ahead for each and every one of us, and there's going to be someone that joins us now, uh, Dave Zanotti. Dave Zanotti, who happens to be my boss and is a frequent guest of this program when Bob is hosting, but I asked him today to join me as well. So good morning, Dave. Well, this is always uncomfortable, isn't it? How do you introduce the boss on talk radio, especially in your own hometown, right? That, that's what think? I was. That's what I was thinking. But um, I, I had a big intro planned, but my wife told me no jokes, no funny stuff. So I was trying to play it by the ah. book. Well, were you talk, she talking about me or you? Or, <laughs> yeah. or, 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 <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, yesterday morning you got a phone call from me. See, and what what happens? And we'll let the listeners in on. It. When I read an article or I dive into something, and sometimes you just can't process it, or I have a question like, this doesn't make sense. What Help me understand this. Um, you have the track record and the history and the experience, and I called you yesterday based on a court case that's making its way through the courts. One will be at the Supreme Court, but one was just got a ruling from a judge, a federal judge in New York, and that court case deals with the upcoming census and how that impacts the Electoral College and the question that will be asked on the census, the question that people are wondering, is it proper to ask, are you a, are you a citizen of the United States? Um, you know, Rob, let's put this in perspective a little bit, because um, you're, you are in your own hometown, and you and I are talking right now. Uh, I'm calling in from Central Florida, where we have an office of the American Policy Roundtable, and a lot of times when you and I are talking or I'm talking to Bob uh, on the air, we're calling in from our Mill, Tennessee office. So we kind of have offices that run right down the center of the country from the Great Lakes to the Florida Keys, and from there we work to reach out with a public policy outreach called the American Policy Roundtable. Now, people in Northeast Ohio kind of take that for granted because it's where we got started, thanks be to God. Uh, and that's, believe it or not, 40 years ago, this coming year of 2020 will be the 40th year that this uh, missionary outreach to America actually began 40 years ago. 
and so what we do is the business of public policy, the mission of public policy in America. And we have a profound focus on the principle of the consent of the governed, which is the platform upon which our concept of the franchise or voting uh, is, is built upon. The idea that self-government uh, gives us the, the, the opportunity for representation and representation commands voting. And so the unfolding of how America came to be and, and the concept of being an electoral process and that entire conversation is a, is a history lesson. It's a college course. It's actually a curriculum all unto itself. Where did that idea come from? We wake up every morning and just like we take for granted the idea, well, the round table's there. I, I live in Northeast Ohio. That's where they started. Of course, they're there. Of course, Walgate's there. Of course, there's an office there. Of course, there's a staff there. Of course, there's I voters. Of course, there's all this stuff. But we look up as Americans and say, well, of course we vote. Uh, but we have no idea the incredible price that was paid to enable thinking people to get to a place where they could create a country built upon self-government through the electoral process. It's one of the greatest stories in all of human history. And that's part of what we do at the American Policy Roundtable and the Public Square, which is our media broadcasting company, which is, is to basically, from a nonprofit, nonpartisan platform, talk about the importance of voting to the life and the health of our nation, something that we take for granted. It's, it's kind of like in the old days, we used to have things called phone books. That's before you were born. But everybody took the phone book for granted. Of course I got a phone book. Everybody's got a phone book. Well, of course we vote. Everybody votes. Well, one, no, everybody doesn't vote. Less than half the people who could do. And the question is, how many people do it with understanding? So that's part of what we're called to do and part of the process. So when you and I get into these questions about the Electoral College, you're hitting a main nerve with me. This may take the rest of the program. You're you're done at eleven, right? So we only got we only got a half an hour. No, right? yeah, yeah, and and that's okay. But I th- I think the the way we want to go and 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 talk about it is I think it comes to a surprise for a lot of people that when we talk about the electoral college and that's based upon the numbers of the members of the United States House plus two because every state has two United States senators. But those numbers, the House numbers, are determined based on the census that's done every 10 years. But that census is based upon the population of a state and not the number of citizens that are in a state. And and can that and does that skew the numbers? Well, that, of course, is a, a critical question because it has consequences. So let's go back. And by the way, before I forget, I want to say one other thing about the role of Roundtable and the role that you play for listeners to take and understand. Right now, you're listening to a mild-mannered talk show guest fill-in host named Rob Walgate. But underneath that sweater lies a Superman cape because he is the project director of a program called iVoters. iVoters is one of the very first, and thanks be to God, one of the best online voter information sites that people crank up in every major election season that helps them find out from a nonpartisan platform where their candidates stand and gives them a lookup of their unique ballot. So when you put in your address, up comes the races that you're able to go vote on, uh, whether it's the next day or the next week or the next month, and you have the opportunity to do your homework ahead of time, and that's offered completely as a public service. And in the last election cycle, you had over 10,000 candidates uh, uh, from across the country in all 50 states on iVoters. 
so that people could get their homework done ahead of time. And that's kind of what you do with your spare time, right? Yeah, yeah. just copy and paste. Alan Duncan taught me just just cut, <laughs> copy and paste. It all it all it all works. It goes in the right place. All right, so this is the platform from which we come to the conversation of the census. Yeah, here's what it comes down to. The census is what, a line in the Constitution? You and I were looking at the Constitution the other night. Was it uh, Article 1, Section 2? Article I think, 1, Section 2, yes. Yeah, a single line about the fact that we're going to have ten, every 10 years a census. Well, why a census? Because we want representation. People think the American Revolution was followed by taxation. It was not necessarily so. The, the, the terminology was taxation without representation. It was fought as much over representation as it was over taxation. It wasn't that the colonists were cheap or that they were anti-tax. It's they didn't like the fact they were being taxed without having a seat at the table. They were not electorally represented in the decision-making process, so they had no voice. And they wanted self-government. They wanted the self-determination of being able to elect officials to represent them and hold a fair and honest debate over their pocketbooks and their property. That, that makes sense. That's, that's the core. That's the heartbeat of where Americans are coming from. They want a voice in the decision-making process. They are created by God. They are moral agents, and they want to exercise that moral agency in the form of civil government. So voting is a big deal, and representation is a big deal with us. And the way that it works is that Congress wanted to make certain going forward every 10 years that we had a fair district uh, enumeration. We knew where people lived, and they were getting represented. So they said every 10 years, we've got to have a federal census so that we know where the people are, so that we can set the Congress up so that people are represented correctly. And remember, we did not have a national income tax at the time of the passage of the Constitution. That didn't happen until the 20th century. So this wasn't so they could set it up so they could tax you. It was set up so that you could be represented. That was the fundamental principle of this. So every 10 years we do this. So the question is, who do you count? That's always been controversial. Because if, if you can only count citizens, okay, that's fine. But if we had only counted citizens in the original Constitution, now watch this, because people <laughs> are going to misunderstand what I'm about to say. If we'd only counted citizens in the original Constitution, the southern states would have had far fewer members in Congress, which is why the Constitution included African slaves and indentured servants as actually slaves as three-fifths a person. Now, of course, we look at that today, and it's abhorrent, the very thought, the very mention of it. it, it, it it's like nails on a blackboard. Yeah, there's right? a lot of people that have an awkward sweat right now because we even brought it up. Well, yeah, but let's bring it up yes. because it's yeah, relevant. Got- it's relevant. We look at it back as pure discrimination. We, we hate the very concept of it, and I'm, 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 look, there's, there's no justification whatsoever for the mentality of calling anyone who's walking on this earth less than a full person. Yes. That's abhorrent regardless of color of skin. But to understand, it wasn't simply an issue of racial prejudice. It was actually how do you count people for the purpose of representation. Now, fast forward. Lest we were the purest people in the world, that we figured out every problem in the world, now we're in a situation in the 21st century where we have all kinds of people in this country who either are here legally but are not citizens or are here illegally. And if they get to answer a census questionnaire because they're at a residence and they are counted in that residency, and they count 
record the congressional representation of that district, whether they are here legally or illegally, whether they're citizens or not. The question is, is that right and fair to the people who are citizens in the process? Well, That's the question. Yes, and is it correct and fair to the states that will be impacted? Because if you did it now, according to this article in the New York Times, if it was to shift based on after the 2020 census, you would have states, you would have uh, Texas would lose a, a member of the House, of the United States House, therefore an electoral vote. Florida would lose one. New York would lose one. California would lose four members of Congress as well as four electoral votes. And then you would have uh, seven other states that would pick up one each because of their population of citizens, not okay, strictly. Okay, let's put that on. Let's flip that on its side. We've got immigration reform legislation, and it's a very tight vote in the House. And the most liberal proposal is passed by 10 votes. Is it possible that those 10 votes came from the states you just mentioned? And the reason that they had those 10 votes because was because illegal immigrants or non-citizens were counted in those states, which means there are consequences to these decisions. Public policy could be altered by people who are not citizens of the United States. Yes, and the determination of who becomes the president of the United States could be altered by that as well. So we really are at a question of correct representation under the rule of law. Now, again, people who only heard a minute of this or who who, who somehow got triggered by part of this conversation need to hear something very clearly. We really believe in the Declaration of Independence and its promise. And we're not afraid to confess out loud that we have desperately struggled as a nation nation to make that promise true and it's yet completed, and that we have done some abhorrent things as people when it comes to the concept of personhood, whether we're talking about the three-fifths clause in the Constitution in slavery or whether we're talking about the question of pro-life issues and the treatment of the unborn. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about, about the question of after at the end of life questions, whenever we deal with the question of personhood in this country, we have got a very poor record of judicial decisions and legislative decisions. We struggle to make the promise of America true for all people. That's a part of the burden of self-government. But understand something, nothing that we're saying intimates for a second that we think that people who are here legally or illegally are of any less worth in the eyes of God or any less importance to all of us as neighbors. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the rule of law. And how do we have a nation of laws so that people can trust their government because they believe their government will treat all people fairly? And that's the challenge that we have to wrestle. It's not just liberty for all. It's liberty and justice for all. So that's why we wrestle with this. So your point is extremely well taken. The census question is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, and when we look at it, that, and to rewind a little bit, Donald Trump, President Trump, wanted to put on the census a question, are you a citizen, to basically find out. Um, and that's what the fight has been over, is that should that question be allowed. And we've dove through the Constitution and we've looked everywhere and what we've found, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, that Congress has Congress could have fixed this mess. Could they? They have the authority yes. to put on the census what they want to put on the census to ask the questions 
that they want because it's been decided before. There's been Fourth Amendment questions. There's been so many questions from a legal perspective as it comes to the census. But the Congress could have put this question on there and fixed and 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 helped fix this. I still think we would have saw litigation, but I know this is important because the, because the census needs to be done and printed. I think by the end of June this year. Well, and of course, Congress could also pass legislation that says the question can't go on right on there. Yes. And, and so, but what we do know for certain is, even though it's just a small number of words in Article One, uh, Section Two, it is in Article One, which means it is the fundamental responsibility of Congress to handle the census. Now, it's delegated off to the Department of Commerce, delegated off to the Census Bureau because Congress decided to create those agencies to do that responsibility because that's what Congress does. It creates bureaucracy. To do the work, which, which makes sense. I mean, 535 members of Congress can't do everything, and they certainly couldn't even conduct a census, in my opinion. So they need help, and, they, and so we pay as taxpayers for them to do it well. But it is under the instruction. Now, the courts have ruled in the past that questions can be asked, added on the census, and that, that it's, it's basically Congress can ask whatever they pretty much want to ask on the census, um, you don't because because you don't have to answer. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. You, that, 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 that's the thing. A question. Yeah, it, right? it, there's a free speech reality. You know, Congress, believe it or not, actually has the power of free speech. Also, yeah. So it, you yeah. know, it, it, this isn't a question of where the data goes. You don't have to answer the question. Well, I, I, now the contention of all this is that, of course, it's discriminatory. Right. Yeah, yeah. That 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 is and. And the one thing I'm learning is I should have had you on at 9.30 instead of 10.30s because we're, we're running out of time. But these are the things, these are the topics that we talk about every week at thepublicsquare.com, and, and I would encourage the listeners to go there. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time and joining us this morning to have this discussion. Rob, you're doing a great job, and thanks for everything that you do. Hey, no problem. Thanks. All right, you're listening to the Bob France Authority. That was Dave Zanotti, my boss. Um, my boss at the American Policy Roundtable in the public square, and we thank him for joining us. Uh, we will be back for a short segment right after this break. Welcome back to the Bob France Authority. Uh, Rob Walgate sitting in. It's amazing how fast a couple hours does go when that red light does turn on. Huge thanks to Dave Zanotti for joining last segment to talk us through um, the Electoral College, the census, the citizenship question. I encourage everyone to go to thepublicsquare.com. You can take a look at the broadcast that we do every week where we discuss a lot of those issues um, the public square, that's who hosts Christmas in America that you heard, heard Bob talk about so often. Um, and we're already in the planning stages of Christmas in America 2019. We're looking forward to it. Should have had Dave talk about the year um, that that will be done. But no, thanks to Dave for joining us. As you can tell, you know, I know he's my boss. I can say this now because he's not listening. Um, but he's one of those minds when it comes to a legal perspective from the Constitution, the Declaration, the Federalist Papers, those brains that you want to pick 
because it is about the rule of law and it is about the respect for the rule of law and what we do in this country. And there's a case that's making its way through the Supreme Court. Oral arguments will be heard in February regarding executive privilege when it came to the president talking about it, asking about putting the question on the census when it comes to are you a citizen. There's a federal judge in New York that just issued that you can't ask the question. So the Supreme Court's going to be wrestling with that over the next couple of months. And it's extremely important that it gets done and decided because this will be the only census we do until the year 2030. And it has an impact on the shape of Congress and how it looks and um, for the Electoral College and how those votes go. And as Dave mentioned, um, we need rules and laws put in place when it comes to immigration, when it comes to people that come here illegally. Um, but in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of God, they are a human being in their creation, and we have to remember that. Um, but that doesn't advocate and allow for someone to break the law, number one. Number two, there are a lot of people around the world that want to go through the legal process of coming to this country, that want to do it the right way, and we need to have that process in place. A few years ago, I went to downtown Cleveland. I went for a friend of mine to their ceremony um, of naturalization, to them becoming a United States citizen. And I'm going to tell you something. I think everyone should attend one of those ceremonies. There were a lot of tears shed in the federal building that morning. A lot of tears of joy, a lot of tears of excitement, a lot of tears of opportunity from people who went about it the right way to become a citizen of the United States of America. And I can remember seeing my friend um, take that oath and what it meant to them. I can remember the families of others that had gathered there that morning. Um, I can remember leaving the ceremony and not really understanding what I just witnessed and what I'd seen, but I know that there was a lot of people whose lives were going to change and many for the better. And again, they did it the right way. They went through the legal process. But as I went out in the hallway and saw all the families hugging and rejoicing, and there was a, a couple, and I'm, I'm just making an assumption, and they were a married couple. I saw one of them. They were very well-dressed. And I saw one of them go up front and take the oath to become a citizen. And um, I looked at him, and I smiled as we got on the elevator together, and I asked him. It was early in the morning. I said, are you going out for a celebratory breakfast? And they looked at me and smiled and said, no. And it was clear they weren't born in the United States. They said, no, we're going to work. We're going to live the American dream. That was their dream, to come to this country to work, to live a better life. There are many people that want to do that through that legal process. It's been a pleasure to be with all of you today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Bob will be back with you tomorrow. And remember, be not overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.